everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. Today is Saturday, September 15th. My name is Corey Schink, and joining me in the studio today is Ilan Martin. Hello, everyone. So the last few episodes, we've covered the criminal mind. So this week, we want to go in the opposite direction, and we want to discuss the righteous mind. We're going to talk about morality, specifically morality from the Western world's point of view. Now, it might seem like an incredibly complicated topic, as it encompasses a whole range of values, uh, moral emotions, narratives, group identities, politics, and moral systems. But the questions of how to behave, what is right versus what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, have their roots in surprisingly simple concepts. That said, we'd like to ground this discussion in a topic we've discussed previously on the show, the idea of homeostasis. As Antonio Damasio defines it in his book, The Strange Order of Things, homeostasis is the unspoken imperative that demands that every single living organism do everything to survive the hazards of life while projecting itself and its progeny into the future. For humans, emotions are the primary guardians of homeostasis, alerting us when something is wrong and guiding us as we attempt to set things right. So we could probably see morality as the primary social mediator of group homeostasis, where emotions dictate to us the moral law and the moral imperatives that are important not only for our personal homeostasis, but that of the group itself. So with that foundation of the term, that definition of the term, I think that it might be good to start off the discussion by going all the way to the roots of human existence where we find morality, all the way down to the simplest caveman uh, existence that um, that really fr uh, frames the, the conversation we'll have today. Ilan, would you like to take it from there? Well, uh, like you said, Corey, that, you know, Hate's book does in a sense begin uh, with the kind of origins of, uh, of morality, uh, what the homeostatic imperatives were uh, that would establish some kind of um, system by which people can get along with their own groups and, and be socialized enough to cooperate and do things together such that they can feed themselves, defend themselves, and increase in their numbers. Um, this is a little bit later in the book, but uh, he gives a definition of moral systems that helps to frame uh, a lot of what we're going to discuss today. Uh, he says that moral systems are interlocking sets of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technologies, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate self-interest and make cooperative societies possible. So, um, working back from that, uh, what Haight tries to establish early on in the book is uh, what, what moral systems are and how they... Uh, come to present themselves um, in the behavior of groups and individuals. Uh, he does this by, um, by giving value to certain behaviors uh, that he cites from certain groups in Africa, in the West, um, who have selected for people who were what he calls uh, free riders, parasites that could be eliminated from the group, um, as well as all types of cooperative behavior that would 
seek to um, strengthen the group. Uh, and what he does is quite interesting. He affirms the, uh, the value of religious um, feelings, uh, ideas, storytelling, uh, traditions, um, all the things that are typically um, poo-pooed uh, by the left in, in some sense. Um, there are appeals to uh, authority, to God, to higher powers that are all uh, exemplified in, in the behaviors of groups who have a religious um, uh, or authoritative um, reverence uh, for God or, or higher ideals. And the interesting, one of the most interesting points that he makes in, in bringing all this uh, to the forefront of his, of his book, I think, is that in, in many cases it's not the religion in and of itself, it's not the ideas that are espoused by the text, but it's ability to bring people together, uh, to have them congregate, to have them um, dance together, to have them uh, observe certain religious uh, traditions or, um, or practices. Um, so that, that is a, that is a big kind of piece to social cohesion that he sprinkles throughout the righteous mind that I think the, the liberal mind or the liberal righteous mind takes for granted largely. And, um, and something that gave me food for thought. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when we're talking about Jonathan Haidt, uh, we're discussing his book, The Righteous Mind. He is a professor of ethical uh, leadership at New York University. And he's really paved the way for a broadening and a deepening of the understanding of morality and really taking it back to uh, the roots that I was discussing in terms of what it takes to survive the daily grind of, of life, no matter if you are a, um, a small tribe in Africa or you are... Uh, you know, a, a wealthy man in Spain, you know, you, uh, whatever it takes in order to survive, um, is largely at the roots. They're very similar. And so we have these moral foundations, um, from the, you know, the distant past that ring true today, because just like our ancestors, we need to raise children. And so we have to have a certain attitude towards children. And if we don't have the proper attitude towards children, then, you know, we will, you know, if we abuse our children, then society will typically step in and say, you know, that's, that's morally wrong. And even, you know, as Jonathan Heights pointed out in his in his book, you know, even if it doesn't involve harm, but it just involves the the violation of a taboo, then society, you know, steps in and they say, well, that's wrong. So it's not just about harming children. That's not the only foundation that there is in, um, you know, in our moral framework. Because beyond that, we had to we had to uh, establish ourselves as a group. We had to have a group identity in order to, um, you know, uh, coalesce and to, you know, build societies to get things together. Ever since the time that, you know, two people, you know, looked at each other and said, you know, let's do this thing together because we can accomplish it together better than we can, you know, separately, then we had this shared intentionality. And from this shared intentionality, from that point, we decided, or we, we had the ability to, uh, to see if somebody wasn't pulling their weight, you know, if they weren't, you know, reciprocating, if they were, you know, being a, a burden on the rest of society. And over, you know, the courses of millennia and millennia, these, these, um, 
these patterns, these archetypal scenarios got hardwired, it seems like, into our, into our moral systems. And so we have these moral taste buds, as he, de as he defines them, that are based on these, these fundamental archetypes of human existence that you know, involve having to find out what kind of food you can eat versus what you can't eat, which would be you know, like disgust, and you know, that at a higher level is sanctity and degradation, you know, which also encompasses you know, avoiding people who, are, uh, who have contagious diseases, um, avoiding animals that have contagious diseases, and you know, so on and so forth. And you know, there's, there's several other elements of, you know, of that, that, uh, that homeostatic imperative that have impressed upon people over time these fundamental needs. But you know, nowadays, you know, they are triggered by very different, very different things. Because you know, obviously, we're we're not so much worried about uh, contagious animals. Um, as we are worried about contagious ideas or contagious uh, cultures that we think that are not uh, compatible with our own. And so those things will trigger that, that same foundation, and for a good reason, too, because there are ideas that we don't want in our cultures. There are ideas that, we, that could you know, lead to the degradation of our cultures. But one of the most foundational things I think that he points out in his book is the fact that a lot of this is purely tribal. All of it happens on an instinctual or on an intuitional level before it ever becomes a rational idea. So we never, we, you know, we have these likes and dislikes and then after we have them we try and justify why why it is that we, you know, in, in order to inf influence other people to come to our side, in order to build a coalition, in order to become a bigger tribe, and in order to beat the opposite team, you know, it's it's all about this big, you know, um, constant battle, you know, for one's culture, one's team, in order to to evolve. So, you know, if you have if you get triggered on this on one moral foundation, but you know, it's. It, it's from the opposite team. You're you're not necessarily going to give uh, you know a, much of a, a care about it. You know you're not going to care if you know you are if you you have a strong foundation in caring for people and not liking to see them get hurt. But you know it's somebody else on the other side is the one that's getting hurt. That's not going to necessarily trigger your foundation, which I think is you know I think that's really an interesting part and a really important part of his theory is the idea that. At the most fundamental level, these moral emotions are tribal, and that you know there's the the six uh, foundations: the care and the harm, which are concerned with cherishing and protecting others; the the concern about fairness and cheating; the concern about liberty or oppression; the concern about loyalty or betrayal; authority and sanctity are really primarily concerned with your own tribe, and not so much you know, the other, the other tribe. Well, you spoke about triggering, Corey, and um, the way he brings this down to the individual level is to uh, give an analogy between an elephant and a rider. So what Haight says is that, you know, we have this, um, these predisposed uh, constitutional uh, points of view, which are our elephant. And our rider is that part of us that is um, most capable of being in control of the elephant. Um, 
when I read this, I was reminded of Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow in System 1 and 2, and how uh, there are all kinds of, uh, for whatever reason, uh, and actually we'll get into this a little bit, because uh, there are a number of reasons that, um, that are presented by hate as to why we are the way we are. Um, but uh, the important thing to, to stress here is the idea that uh, we are uh, reaction machines in some sense. And in, in some ways, our reactions can be uh, intuitively correct, and in some ways they can be uh, wildly incorrect. And uh, he talks about the individual uh, responding to what's called a triggering event as an intuition about something, um, which then forms a judgment and reasoning that, as you said, comes post hoc, this intuition. Uh, it's the narrative that we create around why that particular point of view is so bad or, or evil. Um, and it's really the extent to which we can recognize uh, that our reactions are automatic in many cases and not factually based that, um, that I think we'll succeed in lifting ourselves out of this kind of mechanical response to things that, uh, may not necessarily be correct. Um, and that, that I think is one of the most valuable things about this book, uh, Jonathan Haidt himself is a self-avowed liberal uh, academic. And so, you know, he gives all of these, these anecdotes about his own points of view of politics and, and things that he'd been seeing um, in the years that he was teaching that would cause him to react in a classic, not a, not a classic liberal way, but in the classic liberal sense that we've come to understand liberalism and progressivism in, in this day and age. So it's a testament to his ability to think objectively, I think, um, and to get over some of his own sacred cows that he's been able to break a lot of this down, point the finger to himself quite a bit, and even reveal some you know, revelations he's had reading um, the works of conservative thinkers. So uh, you know, one anecdote he gives is how he, he in realizing that the Democratic Party uh, was running a poor campaign under John Kerry, who was running against George Bush W. Uh, in the 2000s. Um, he presented a speech on these moral taste buds that you alluded to. Uh, and he said that in order to appeal to the Republican Party or to conservatives who, who might otherwise vote for Kerry, they had to... Um, you know, the, the campaign needed to speak more to conservative values. Um, so you, you mentioned a few of them. I, I think I'm going to go through uh, the six major ones, and we'll break that down a little bit, because uh, it, it really is a, a big crux of, of his book and understanding where liberals come from, where conservatives come from. So basically, in, um, in the speech he gave, he he suggested that the Democratic Party begin to speak more about um, the Authority Subversion Foundation, uh, which he calls an evolved response to the adaptive challenge of forging relationships that will benefit us within social hierarchies. It makes us sensitive to signs of rank or status 
and to signs that other people are or are not behaving properly given their position. Um, there was that as well as I, it was either the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation or the Sanctity Degradation Foundation, uh, which are also traditional uh, conservative values. These are, these are the types of things that you would hear conservatives talk about you know, when they say God and country or you know, God bless our troops or uh, what about the Constitution. Um, all of these go to inform these particular uh, moral foundations that are so predominant in conservatives. Um, so you said it a few minutes ago, but we'll go over it again. There's the uh, Care Harm Foundation, evolved in response to the adaptive challenge of caring for vulnerable children. It makes us sensitive to signs of suffering and need. It makes us despise cruelty and want to care for those who are suffering. Then there is the Fairness Cheating Foundation, involved in response to the adaptive challenge of reaping the rewards of cooperation without getting exploited. It makes us sensitive to indications that another person is likely to be a good or bad partner for collaboration and reciprocal altruism. It makes us want to shun or punish cheaters. So uh, these two particular moral foundations are very specific to liberals. So in, um, in giving a kind of survey to thousands of individuals, he found that across the board, uh, the Care Harm Foundation and the Fairness Cheating Foundation were what informed liberal ideology or thinking or intuition, however you want to call it. Um, Further, he says that the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation evolved in response to the adaptive challenge of forming and maintaining coalitions. It makes us sensitive to signs that another person is or is not a team player. It makes us trust and reward such people, and it makes us want to hurt, ostracize, or even kill those who betray us or our group. We talked about the Authority Subversion Foundation, um, the Sanctity Degradation Foundation evolved initially in response to the adaptive challenge of the omnivores dilemma, and then to the broader challenge of living in a world of pathogens and parasites. That's what you were alluding to earlier, Corey. It includes the behavioral immune system, which can make us worry of a diverse array of symbolic objects and threats. It makes it possible for people to invest objects with irrational and extreme values, both positive and negative which are important for binding groups together. Now, one of, the, one of the most fascinating things about this book is that in these surveys that he conducted, uh, which were corroborated by other surveys, all six of these morality traits were demonstrated or uh, adhered to, to some degree, by people who considered themselves conservative where it was only the first two, the Care Harm Foundation and the Fairness Cheating Foundation, that were uh, strongly represented by what we would call liberals. Um, so he works from there, and, uh, and there's a, a benefit to just focusing on care harm and fairness cheating as opposed to a big... Um, blindness that would seem to exist among liberals for only focusing on those two traits. 
Um, and I have a little more to say on, on that, but you look like you wanted to comment on that. Well, I just wanted to comment on the story that he gave about how he came up with the liberty oppression uh, module that, you know, he basically, he published his initial findings of these five moral taste buds, and then he got so much backlash from people who said he just didn't understand what the heck he was talking about, right. because they didn't want to be oppressed by the government, or the New World Order, or the UN, or the Republicans, or the fascists, or the Nazis, and he realized that this was a significant concern that he had overlooked in his research, and when he analyzed it more, he found that this liberty oppression module was founded in the need to defeat alpha males or to keep alpha males from bullying and dominating groups. You know, you imagine, you know, the those kinds of inequalities that we see today, that's the same kind of pressure that they, you know, smaller tribes must have felt when one big guy decided he was going to take more than he deserved. And, you know, people don't like being bullied. So they would, they would band together and they would, you know, whip up on the guy or they would start by, you know, spreading gossip about him in order to bring him down. And then if that didn't work, then they would, you know, beat him up, use violence or whatever it took. But, you know, that liberty oppression module came out of this, you know, this huge moral outcry over, uh, you know, just the, some, you know, the, all the kinds of conspiracies that, you know, that you hear about conspiracies in quotes, you know, some may be accurate, some may not be. But that, it, that moral intuition that someone is trying to oppress you is very strong. And it's a very important part that he ended up including in the, in also in the liberal uh, mentality that liberals clearly, you know, if you see today that anyone who even attempts to sound like an alpha male, you know, or, or to, you know, to manifest the traits of a, of a masculine type of guy, he is immediately hounded and attacked and forced to apologize. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that was the, that was the one thing that I wanted to add to that. Well, just taking a step back for a moment, um, I have to say that uh, th this this book really widens your, or it has really widened, I'll say it for myself, my own understanding of conservative versus liberal thinking. Um, uh, th there is a, a whole appreciation that he gives, and maybe because I've, maybe because I've identified so long uh, for being uh, left-leaning and, and having left-leaning reactions and responses to things, that all of this information uh, was, or, or at least a lot of it, is quite recognizable to me. Um, and of course, this is part of the process I, I think that, that's, uh, that's essential to the book. It's, it's seeing these, these things, these leanings in yourself, and, um, and strengthening your writer on this elephant that, uh, that you don't, may not even know exists to some degree. Um, and certainly uh, appreciating another's perspective, you know, the shoes that they're walking in, um, what they're experiencing from their own angle and not diminishing it or dismissing it out of hand is, is what's going to um, assist people into the future to the extent that that's even possible at this point because people are so polarized by ideas. They're so, uh, you know, stimulated and, and, um, and kind of pushed into a certain direction by forces that uh, we don't quite understand on a mass level. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point because, you know, this mora- these moral foundations, you know, you it seems like it's fairly predictable that if you know how this works and, you know, if you're, uh, you know, more of a criminal mind, you just, you know how to push the buttons in order to get the kind of reaction that you want. Um, it reminds me of what we were talking about on in the show on The Strange Order of Things with the foundations of the mind being the image, that that's like the found, that's the basic unit of the mind is the image. And that, um, those images have moral connotations to them. You know, that's how we decide what is moral and, uh, or, you know, what actions or who needs to be punished is based on this image that's constructed, whether by our own eyes, you know, we see someone beating someone and so then, ah, there's moral outcry, you know, you know, go stop the person or, um, you know, or, uh, you're told that this, this guy over here is a dictator. He needs to be overthrown because he's oppressing his people. You're given this image and then you're expected to react based on that image. Now, clearly, you know, the, the system of Western morality as it's evolved over time has many, uh, many safeguards to prevent this from happening. You know, you have a justice system, you have the investigatory process, you have police, you have lawyers, you have all sorts of mechanisms in place to determine the correctness of this image, you know, that at least, that functions for, you know, the vast majority of cases. But, you know, in some of the most important times, that that system just falls apart and it collapses. And it, and then people just, you know, they cheer some of the most heinous crimes, um, not realizing that, you know, they've been played. You know, their strings have been plucked and now they're singing the tune, you know, that um that you know that that is fundamentally immoral. Well, uh one of the one of the other things that he gets into um is this idea that uh, because of our particular elephants and and how we're predisposed to to think on certain things uh, concerning liberal or conservative values, um, there there are all of these assumptions being made about the other side. So uh, I think <laughs> because he himself was a liberal um, and may still be to some great degree, uh, he was able to take the point of view of, you know, wait a second, there, there is something of value to conservatism. Um, and he, you know, he points this out quite specifically. Uh, he writes, the hatred of oppression is found on both sides of the political spectrum. The difference seems to be that for liberals who are more universalistic and who rely more heavily upon the Care Harm Foundation, the Liberty Oppression Foundation is employed in the service of underdogs, victims, and powerless groups everywhere. It leads liberals, but not others, to sacralize equality, which is then pursued by fighting for civil, civil rights and human rights. Liberals sometimes go beyond equality of rights to pursue equality of outcomes. This is something that we've been discussing previously um, in, with Jordan Peterson. Uh, which cannot be obtained in a capitalist system. This may be why the left usually favors higher taxes on the rich, high levels of services provided to the poor, and sometimes a guaranteed minimum income for everyone. Conservatives, in contrast, are more parochial, concerned about their groups rather than all of humanity. For them, the Liberty Oppression Foundation and the hatred of tyranny supports many of the tenets of economic conservatism, 
Don't tread on me with your liberal nanny state and its high taxes. Don't tread on my business with your oppressive regulations. And don't tread on my nation with your United Nations and your sovereignty-reducing international treaties. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I guess the point is made that, you know, there is something to be said for, um, for seeing injustice around the world and wanting to speak out about it. Uh, but there is certainly something to be said for starting in your own backyard and and strengthening your own position with your own kin, with your own, or if it's not your kin, your own, um, your own group, your own uh, affiliation, your own town, your own city. Um, you know, it, it's almost as though he's he's expanding this. You know, Peterson will say clean your room as, as the very most basic unit of taking responsibility. So conservatives in the way that this is described or conservatism is a kind of taking responsibility within your own group, within your own backyard, it would seem. Now, he, uh, Haight also points out that there's a certain kind of narrowness among some conservatives which is exemplified by statements like, you know, stay the course, uh, you know, let's just uh, continue with traditions and uh, continue with the way, things, uh, the way things have always been done, where liberals will tend to think more outside the box and be innovative. Um, and this is, this is demonstrated in the fact that uh, the tech industry tends to be very liberal. Where, uh, where people of industry and manufacturing tend to be more conservative, um, where people who live in the cities tend to be more liberal, where there's uh, diversity uh, and multiculturalism, um, and people living in rural areas, uh, as demonstrated by you know, who voted for Trump, live in the Midwest. So uh, some of these distinctions have been made really apparent to us in, in what we've been reading on SOT and, and other books, um, but the distinctions are really fine-tuned in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, like what you're, you're talking about is just this massive failure at communication that it seems to be, you know, part of it is, is egged on by, you know, unscrupulous politicians who they make it their job to divide people in order to have a solid base um and you know it's the status quo this is what we say these are our issues and this is what gets us our votes and you know and then another part of it uh, stems from just our lack of awareness about uh what morality really is you know we it's like we said before it's completely intuitional and it's you know, for the most part, it's it's not been adequately identified, you know, at least in our cultural system, what uh, morality really is. Because we've had, for the past, you know, a couple hundred years, we've had a, basically a narrative about, you know, who we are and what we're doing as a civilization that you could call the liberal progress narrative. And I'm just going to read that uh, that narrative here. So it says, once upon a time, the vast majority of human persons suffered in societies and social institutions that were unjust, unhealthy, repressive, and oppressive. These traditional societies were reprehensible because of their deep-rooted inequality, exploitation, and irrational traditionalism. 
But the noble human aspiration for autonomy, equality, and prosperity struggled mightily against the forces of misery and oppression, and eventually succeeded in establishing modern liberal democratic capitalist welfare societies. While modern social conditions hold the potential to maximize the individual freedom and pleasure of all, there is much work to be done to dismantle the powerful vestiges of inequality, exploitation, and repression. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that basically sums up, I think, if anybody has gone to school in a Western, uh, especially in America, that that is the narrative that you are fed from day one, is that, you know, freedom, progress, liberty, democracy. And, you know, that's not the way that mankind has always seen it, but that sort of that sort of uh disdain for the past disdain and hatred for the past seems to um i mean it well on one level it's fundamentally wrong because i mean you can't just throw away all history as a source of repression and basically just there's no reason to to consider it because that leads to the kinds of perspectives that we see with like Sam Harris who says, let's just throw away the Bible, throw away, you know, all these stupid religions and then we'll all become, you know, uh, saints of, of knowledge and enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way it works. You know, you have to understand history because history is the attempt to understand. And if you don't, if you don't even take into account those lessons, then, you know, you're, you're just fundamentally lost. Um, but but anyways, that framework is that is largely uh, the framework that our academic, like psychologists and social scientists and all the people in the humanities, that's their narrative for the most part. And Jonathan Haidt talks about that in the book, is that these individuals, um, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned, but they, they viewed this liberty-slash-oppression matrix as the fundamental moral quality. So when they analyzed morality, they looked at it in terms of, you know, our you know, children, um, they're oppressed by their parents because, you know, they can never really understand what their parents' moral reasoning is. So the only way that they can really understand morality is through, you know, playing with their friends and through, you know, trial and error with their friends, which is one important part, but it shows a disdain for, you know, many other different levels of of morality. And so over time, you know, when Jonathan Haidt came into the university system, he found that pretty much all of morality was based on the care or harm foundation. So everything was about this, you know, idea that, you know, don't hurt anyone's feelings, um, you know, and if if you're a moral person, then you, you know how to empathize with another person and you would never want to hurt anyone. And that's just not true. You know, there's much, like he, one of his basic principles in his book is that there is much more to, to morality than uh, care and harm. And you know, there's, you know, morality has a dark side too, you know, there's violence involved in morality, you know, when somebody, um, you know, when there's a tribe invading, you know, it's, it's not a sin, it's not immoral for a tribe to repel another tribe with violence, or to oust someone who is, uh, you know, a predator, obviously a predator using violence, it's not immoral uh, to do such things, because it's one of the, you know, the foundations of, you know, how we reach that homeostatic imperative. So that whole, that, that, uh, that liberal progress narrative that really, I mean, it kind of tosses away history and it restrains a lot of morality to just this one care harm foundation. That has been the, really the, the information that a lot of these 
quote unquote liberal elite um, have been you know put you know giving students it's it's what you know students learn it's what their research was it was for until the late 90s I think when height really started getting into this and evolutionary psychology came to the came to the fore, um, which in previous uh, decades had been lambasted as racist and evil, um, then we started to see that there's a lot more to morality going on and that there are all these other uh, elements that we need to take into consideration in order to understand one another. And we don't, and you know, because of that, that tribalism, that hatred of the other, hatred of conservatives, hatred of liberals, you know, this just seems like the, you know, the liberals just kept going off and off and off and, to, and just kept lost complete contact with, with the conservatives, which are really, they seem to be the more, the most grounded. You know, I don't think that you could probably have a really fully functional society without both mm -hmm. forms of morality. You know, because you you need to have people who are open to new ideas, who are open to you know incorporating other cultural ideas that are good. But you need to have people who are willing to say no, close the the borders because you know there's terrorists are coming in, or you know they right. or we can't trust these people, or they you know they they could be they could have uh, diseases, they could have bacteria that we don't um, that just not compatible with our with our society. So yeah, there's. There's just this fundamental misunderstanding that's rooted in this tribalism that you know we've been talking about, and that and it goes all the way back into you know the really just the collapse of of Christian morality, or not necessarily the collapse, but the decline, you know, with the French Enlightenment and Napoleon, the American revolutions, all of these you know Western revolutions that contained many positive things in regard to uh, science, technology, you know, capitalism, the improving of the living standards. But in terms of a moral system, it, that, that whole system cut away the, the, the conservative, traditional, author, you know, authoritative type values. And now, you know, we kind of live in a world today that sorely needs those values and that instead of listening to that, that, you know, that grounded source mm -hmm. is, is it just, just violently antagonizing it, which is just probably one of the worst ideas that you could possibly come up with if you were concerned about, you know, actual welfare of, you know, of, of the, of your society, which, you know, but anyways, I don't know if you had anything to say about that, Elon. Only about five things. <laughs> no, the, lots of good points there because, um, uh, the righteous mind not only gets into, uh, societal and political uh, discussions of conservatism and, and liberalism, but also religious ones. And um, he, he has a, a short chapter called Is God a Force for Good or Evil? Um, and I'm just going to read for it and I read from it rather and, uh, and comment on it. He asks, Does religion make people good or bad? Um, now, I would say among most liberals who are secular and, and, and who kind of sound like that, uh, that quote that you just read from Haight, um, you know, there's a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to people who are religious as ass-backward and uh, narrow-minded and superstitious. And, um, and because they're not secular and, and open-minded and free-thinking, so to say, uh, that there's somehow something defective about these people. Um, but anyway, he, what he says is, and, and this makes reference to Sam Harris, who he refers to as a new atheist. Uh, he says, the new atheists assert that religion is the root of most evil. 
They say that it is the primary cause of war, genocide, terrorism, and the oppression of women. Religious believers, for their part, often say that atheists are immoral and that they can't be trusted. Even John Locke, one of the leading lights of the Enlightenment, wrote that promises, covenants, and oaths, which are the bonds of human society, can have no hold upon an atheist. The taking away of God, though but even in thought, dissolves all. So who is right? And I'm, I'm not going to continue reading because uh, this is where you really, you just want to, you just want to read the book. Uh, if nothing else, you know, if you get nothing out of this show today, please just read the book. Um, but, I mean, who, who asks these questions? These are, these are excellent questions. And uh, what it made me think about um, was uh, communist Russia. Um, it made me, uh, it reminded me quite a bit of our discussion of Solzhenitsyn and his warning to the West and how communism was basically the, uh, this kind of um, reverence for, for atheism, for, um, for equality, when it was anything but. Uh, if anything, it was one of the most, you know, as we know by now, one of the most oppressive, repressive, uh, life, uh, life-stifling political systems that the 20th century has ever known. Uh, considering it, it, it's affected so many millions of people in such a negative way. Um, but having said that, uh, we have been seeing in Russia a resurgence of religion um, and of conservative, conservatism um, in, a, in a kind of a religious sense. And this has done, on the whole, I would say great good for the country. It's built a cohesion. It's built a sense of purpose, a shared sense of, sense of purpose, or as Haight would call it, a, uh, a shared intentionality, uh, which means that, that the people of Russia as individuals uh, and as part of a group in a multi-level way have found in themselves a, a kind of new reason for being uh, or a new way of being that has that has lifted Russia, and it's a, it's a miracle story, it really is, um, over the past 20 years, out of the doldrums of, of uh, economic disaster, uh, out, of a, out of the ashes of a political system that, um, that was basically, uh, you know, j just a complete horror show to, to tens of millions of people for many decades. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting to to read this and to think of Russia in particular as this as this place which has reasserted its its religious uh, cohesion or or vehicle for cohesiveness, um, bringing people together to pray, bringing a a higher sense of um, of value and uh, and um, uh, reverence to their nation something to be proud of, something to look forward to, something to build on. Um, you know, how else to explain, uh, at least partly, uh, how it is that Russia has, has become what it's become today, which is a, a first world power, where all the adults in the room, uh, led by Putin, who is a religious man, um, are having conversations about how to prevent another world war. I mean, the, the, basically, you know, these are the people. 
Uh, and they're bringing other people along. They're, they're talking to anybody that seems reasonable. Um, so just bringing that on a geopolitical perspective, um, that was one of the insights that, that, uh, that sort of popped out at me when reading about um, this description of God being good or evil. Because that, to me, is the very best that, uh, that God can do or religiosity can do uh, for, a, for a country or a people. Yeah, absolutely. I I have to. I mean, as a moral, as a moral system, Christianity really is. You know, it's you know, it's claims to the how reality works. You know, in terms of you know Genesis and and you know salvation through you know worshiping Christ. You know, they're they they don't work. But in terms of a moral system, Christianity has solved so many problems that we have today that are that that it's unbelievable that that it how it came about and how it was um, how it was formed. And you know, it created the crucible that that gave us, you know, capitalism and science and and the, you know, the liberalism that we have today. But you know the the system. You know it does so much for for guilt. You know the kind of guilt that you know a lot of liberals feel. You know Christianity says we're all guilty. We've all sinned. We're all responsible for the death of of God manifest as man. You know, but He came here to to uh, to give us salvation so that we don't have to be you know the way that we have been. So you have a solution to guilt, and then you have uh, the universal uh, universalization of of humanity, where we're all sinners, you know, God created all of mankind in his image, you know, then, and there's, you know, this idea of, of every other person in, in the world, we have some, we share some connection, some in, even if it's just, you know, the, in a, in a very spiritualized way, and it didn't really manifest that way in, in practice. But as a moral system, I mean, it was just, just unequaled, and you know the the Western mind was was tutored under the the idea of Christ for you know for a long time, and then to have it just removed, you know, just for it to be gone, um, is you know it's that is also in itself a moral narrative, you know, that the West, you know, that that's in the West, you know, the idea of the lost um, morality, the lost uh, sanctity, you know, that we experience today and that, you know, the degradation of our society because we lost that. But as a moral system, you know, I think that in, in the West we've had, you know, several major, major moral systems. You know, if you look into the, the history of, you know, like Greece, you have, you know, kind of the Homeric morality that's based on the cunning and the, the, the sometimes ruthless, the aggressive, but at the same time, the hospitable um, uh, hero, you know, the Homeric hero, the Odysseus who, who has to survive the encounters with gods and titans, but, you know, using his guile and his cunning, he performs excellence in his tasks. And as a morality, as a moral code, you know, for the Greeks, that, you know, that excellence was the defining feature of what it meant to be a good person. You know, if you perform, you know, every, everything had uh, some form of excellence to it. A table could have excellence. Uh, a laborer could have excellence. A leader had his own form of excellence. Mother had her own form of excellence. 
Um, but you know, that that system obviously is, is lost in time. And then, you know, if, but if you take that idea, that fundamental moral idea and you apply it today with what we've learned, I mean, you see that there is a fundamental truth there mm -hmm. that you can't, you can't do away with, mm -hmm. you know, and it's part of, I think, paying homage to your ancestors that you acknowledge that they had something right. There was something fundamentally true about that. Even if, you know, at the time it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't matter if you, you know, you murdered a slave, you know, that that was fine, you know, or if, um, you know, racism or xenophobia or whatever, you know, that that was fine. You know, obviously there's things you look back on and you think, well, that, that wasn't a good idea. But they had this idea fundamentally right. And you read the, you know, the Homeric epics, they still, people still you know, are educated in them today because of the, the moral value that they contain. And I think that's the important thing uh, to keep in mind about morality is that some of, of it is timeless, which is interesting concerning all of the, you know, like the knowledge that we have about, um, you know, the, the attitude that science has about, you know, these, you know, especially social sciences, that everything is just situational or this or that. But morality, so much, so many moral lessons are timeless that, um, you know, you can go back, you can look at these things, you can see how you can apply them. You know, just the idea of excellence and the Christian idea of, you know, humility before God, um, the, you know, God being some something so much higher and so much more valuable than anything that you could know, you know, that, but you, you are humbled before it, the creation, you know, the fact that you're conscious and the fact that, you know, that there's, um, there are people that throughout history, you know, that have manifested themselves like sons of God, you know, they, you know, they come and they sacrifice themselves. You look at like Vladimir Putin as one example, like you brought him up and you look at a man who sacrificed his life to bring his country to, you know, great heights, you know, and in the ancient times, you know, they probably call, you know, call him some sort of a, a God. He might have a, an emperor, an imperial cult, you know, created for him because of those feelings of reverence. He, he will absolutely be remembered um, long into the future. Um, I think by many people, but just getting back to your, um, you know, your Odyssey and, and your Homer, uh, reference Corey, which I think is a really good one. Um, because basically Odysseus is interacting with the gods. Uh, there is a, uh, an exchange of energy. You have Pallas Athene, Athena, um, trying to, um, trying to, engineer events in his favor, even though he still spends many years on his trek to get back home from the, uh, from the wars. And, uh, and then you have other gods who are trying to thwart him. Um, and it's not so much, it's not so much that, uh, that we, that we have these gods necessarily, uh, these good and bad ones that are affecting us negatively or positively. Although maybe an argument could be made for that. I don't know. Uh, but just that, uh, throughout these books, the Iliad and, and the Odyssey, you have um, you have moments where they are making offerings to the gods, where they're they're sharing the fat of the lamb uh, in in honor of the gods, uh, where they're saying libations and prayers uh, before battle. There's a reverence, there's a acknowledgement that, at the very least uh, among these among these uh, parties, these war parties, that there is something higher. Uh, that that is uh, influencing them, and in doing so together, in in marching in in lockstep, uh, you know, figuratively and literally, um, that helped to form their cohesion um, with one another. 
um, their loyalty, their, their sense of identity, their sense of purpose. Um, so I, I just really enjoyed hearing you speak on that because I, I, I agree. I think uh, those books are, are very instructive in many ways. Yeah, they're they're fascinating. I couldn't even pretend to know, you know, to to know what they really signify, you know, but and what they symbolize for so many different people. But just what you were discussing there about awe and gratitude, and I don't know if you use those words uh, specifically, but um, yeah, I think you know that's a good point to bring in, you know, the moral emotions themselves. That you know that there are there are uh, there's a whole family of moral emotions that are qualitatively different than you know just your regular sensations of good and bad and that those emotions have been um kind of organized into several different categories which uh one is the other condemning emotions where you feel contempt anger and disgust at another person there's the self-conscious emotions like shame embarrassment and guilt there's the other suffering emotions of sympathy and distress at another's distress which is basically just if there's somebody distressed you just you just naturally feel that way it's you just feel distressed because of it um and then there's the other praising emotions of gratitude and awe slash elevation and one of the things that you are struck with when you read about these different emotions and you think about how they play in your life they are transformative in a very real way like uh emotions of gratitude and awe slash elevation um like what you're discussing there how they bring cohesion into into a community when you as well as others can feel gratitude and elevated about the same principle mm -hmm. that 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 elevates you and that elevates your community that brings cohesiveness and you know there are two forces at work at least two forces at work in in a community one is the centrifugal forces which are tearing it apart and there's thousands of them you know there's cheating there's divorce there's um betrayal there's just just a normal you know malfunctioning there's not being a, a good friend when you should be there's you know all the suffering that you cause as a you know as a person in other people's lives and then not only that but then you have environmental pressures the need to find food what if there isn't enough food you have to you know or in the modern world to find a good job and you have to leave um you know you have to leave uh, go miles away from your family you tear apart your family there's no you know there's no nuclear you know kin kind of dynamic going on there but these um like the emotions of gratitude and awe slash elevation and all the other moral uh emotions are are the opposite you know they're the centripetal forces that keep a community together you know when you feel guilty for how you harm somebody else or when you feel sympathy with another person or distress at their distress you know when you when you feel embarrassed or guilty at how you've treated another person you learn how to become a better person you learn what it really takes to live in a community and that's you know as a more as in in terms of like emotions and higher emotions and lower emotions it seems to me that these moral emotions are kind of like that gateway to a higher perspective on what it means to be a person you know you you see yourself from another person's point of view that in and of itself is higher than your own selfish narratives about who you are your selfish justifications on why you you know you act the way that you do and then by opening yourself up to that that's you know you open up to the community and it brings um it, it just it seems to bring a very much needed force of cohesiveness to that group otherwise i mean these forces just tear you apart i mean they're just gonna there's no way to keep 
a community together. I mean, and that's, we look at the world we have today, we see how everything is just spinning out of control. We have no, um, I mean, like emotions like gratitude and awe or elevation. I mean, there's, can you imagine, I mean, a, a shared moment in a, in a, and, a, and a lot of it has to do with just the size of, of the countries that we inhabit and the fact that there are different groups within a country these days. It's, you know, ever since the rise of a corporation, it seems like that, that was in and of itself a fundamentally different organism mm -hmm. within a country that had its own homeostatic imperatives that then you know people had to in some, one way or another pledge their allegiance to that fractured the community you know that kind of cohesive community national ethic which um you know i, I mean i don't know if good or bad or you know it's an evolution or a de-evolution but something i think that you know people that it would have been nice if at some point you know people had this information and could have said all right so this is probably going to be the effect of this this new social transformation that we're going through we need to plan we need to have something you know in place in order to you know instill that kind of that civic religious fire that keeps you know that keeps communities together or maybe it's not even possible. I don't know. It might not even be possible. Once you get to a certain size and a certain amount of complexity, I mean, it just might be all, all bets are off. Yeah. Well, you're, you're right when you say that it is incredibly complicated. And just on that subject of uh, corporatism and, and corporations being this, this kind of entity unto itself, um, hate makes a point that, uh, you know, that, that, that is something that, um, that liberals tend to get correct uh, which is the recognition of um, how out of control corporations have become as, as these kind of laws unto themselves, where it really takes a government, uh, which is the only you know power left in the world to bring these um, bring these entities under heel. Uh, otherwise, they are these pathological um, forces that that have been that have wreaked havoc. Uh, you know, when you think recently of all the information that's come out about Monsanto and it's, it's knowing, uh, negligence, um, in, uh, in its, in its use of pesticides and, and, and other chemicals that have been proven harmful. They've known about it for years. So they are this major, major force of, uh, of, of destruction and evil, uh, that's highly organized, highly powerful, uh, has all of this political capital, uh, economic capital, the ability to um, basically inflict its will uh, on, on areas, uh, on large swaths of people uh, internationally. And, you know, how do you, how do you even begin to, to write that sort of thing? Anyway, I, I digress a little bit. Um, but that's what, uh, that's what came to mind when you mentioned that. Well, I mean, I think it's a good point because you can't, you can't really talk about morality without talking about sanctioning or discipline or punishment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, if you, when you just allow groups, um, individuals or entire companies to behave with impunity, you embolden other criminal elements. I mean, and there's just, that's just so, that's so basic that I think it gets lost in, in a lot of, you know, the complexities and everything, but it's, you know, there's, there should be sanctions and, and actual legit sanctions for this kind of behavior. But then that gets into the problem of, you know, when you have this kind of liberal progress, um, everybody, you know, no alpha males, no strong 
powerful, you know, independent leader, no strong, you know, central government type thing, except for, you know, authoritarian feminists, then um, you get this sort of weak, weak wristed response where it's just like, well, you know, they're going to pay me when I get over to the other, when I, you know, go apply for a job at Monsanto, I'll get paid. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Mm. You know, what's morality, you know, we're all just out for ourselves. You know, that's... um, If I don't do it, someone else will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But... Well, it becomes limp-wristed in the one sense that, uh, you know, speaking about the feminists that are trying to to take over, um, you you can't have any kind of religiosity or any kind of reverence for anything outside of the Care Harm Foundation. But then they become, like, super strict on trivial matters and it just gets warped Mm -hmm. and that was one thing that i was thinking about is trying to build an entire society upon upon the one single care harm foundation like you get exactly what we're seeing on the left which is everybody's just eating each other and they're you know crawling over each other to tear each other apart Right, and that you know that's where that tribalism I think comes in. Oh, by the way, everybody, that was Adam Daniels, <laughs> hello, our PJ, our engineer, our engineer. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a that's difficult because in one sense, I just I can't help I can't really apply the concepts of these moral foundations to modern day what we see as like the feminists and all of these crazy activists because. I mean, I don't think they actually really care about Mm -hmm. care or harm. I don't think, I mean, to them, I really see it as, you know, like a a power play where they know they can push these people's buttons because they've been doing it for years and people will bend over backwards in order to seem moral. You know, it's just the wolves in sheep's clothing. I think that, um, you know, there's no doubt there's a lot of people who they literally they that's they 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 have a really sensitive care harm foundation and they're the suckers for them but you know i mean well I, they're I, not the instigating uh, factor i was listening to um malcolm x um last night in a short video in an interview he gave uh, this was in the early to mid 60s and um they were talking about uh white civil rights uh, proponents in the early 60s. And, and basically, uh, Malcolm X's point was that most of these people, uh, at least according to him and, and his experience of them, were, uh, were trying to uh, basically usurp or lead um, black groups um, and would only participate if they could be the leader. If, if there was something in it for themselves, if they would be recognized uh, by their, you know, what we would, what we would now call virtue signal, signaling. Mm-hmm. Look at me. I'm this, I'm this white man looking out for my, my, uh, my fellow black brother and yeah. sister. Um, so he recognized this and he said, if, if they cared so much about us as a group, why don't they advise us from the sidelines where they see we could use some, some assistance and then take a step back? And and let us do it for ourselves. So um, just a just an incredibly insightful uh, talk he gave some time ago um, that reminds me of all this. Yeah, I think that you know that's that's an interesting point that you brought up, though, Adam, is that you know trying to build a society on one moral foundation, and the fact that you know what hate or hate uh, writes about is that you know in order to really 
communicate to people, you know, rather than, you know, trying to beat them over the head by calling them racist and, you know, calling all society racist and sexist and homophobic, is that, you know, in order to communicate to people who are really liberal, I mean, you don't give them arguments, you know, you don't argue with them because, like he says, that's just the, the, what was it, the, the, tail wagging the dog or something along those lines but basically you know it's if you shake the tail that the dog's not um shaking or whatever Whatever. anyways (laughs) bad bad example but um you you communicate with them about the actual harm that's being caused the actual harm to society Mm -hmm. i mean that's being caused by all of these this craziness and you know you have to get to them on an intuitive level to make them feel to give them the correct image of what's really happening and as a human being if you are giving giving yourself the correct images the correct information you are naturally going to you know i think adopt these correct moral intuitions mm-hmm. you know but that's the key is to continuously give yourself the correct information about what's going on not just dogmatically accepting these um you know these fake images or the the heuristics um which you know they all they really seem to do is just amp people up into hysterical overreactions over just about about everything you know i mean you have to see the complexity and that's where i think uh, there's a new sod article up about the west um and declining back into tribalism and, and losing liberalism and declining into tribalism is the sense that, you know, it doesn't matter anymore, the arguments or the intuitions. These people, so many people are so set in their tribal affiliations because they have their own group needs at this point. The feminist industry, you know, that if you've ever read the book, The Politics or The New Politics of Sex, you see that, you know, they've, they have so much uh, power in, you know, the Department of uh, Family Services, uh, you know, in the UK and in, in the US, all over the West, they have such a vested interest in maintaining their ideological power that there's no, there's, there is no morality involved for them at that point. It's not, it's not these triggered emotions. Now it's, you know, it's this mask of, of emotion, this mask of morality in order to justify the sheer amount of money that they have and the amount of power they have to take, you know, children away from parents in order to get policies changed, in order to make everything a hate crime. You know, if you, you know, if you have the slightest, um, you know, sense of being triggered, now you're the victim of a hate crime on someone else's part. And, and it's, you know, it's just such a, it's such a mess because it really has devolved from what was the good aspect of liberalism in terms of open-minded acceptance of ideas and now just the tribal, just pure tribal hatreds. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny because it, in a sense, there is no real tribe. You have all of this, um, the, the basis of liberal ideology these days seems to be anything goes uh, to the detriment of anything else because they don't see the downside of, of their own thinking and, and policies they want to enact. And um, in a way, you know, so, so all of that's supposed to support some kind of altruistic uh, sensibility, right? You know, we, this, this care for, for others who may be different. Um, and yet, statistically, uh, Haight mentions that it's groups that, are, that tend to be more religious, for instance, that go to church more often, as an example, that tend to contribute a lot more to their communities uh, that tend to contribute money uh, 
um, and to give to causes uh, by a much higher percentage, like maybe 20%. Um, so that was an interesting statistic as well. Uh, when you when you kind of think the opposite of, of people who are, um, you know, so-called liberals that they would that they would be the ones to put their money where their mouth is when uh, when quite often all they want to do is is sound off on a particular subject. Well, sound off on a particular subject and uh, force the government to step in and strong arm whatever it is that uh, you know whatever policy it is that they're trying to enact or or get pushed through. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well. Uh, speaking of um, speaking of governments um, and and an appeal to government, there was one term that uh, that hate used in the book, which um, which is exoskeleton, um, which basically means that uh, that people of a more conservative bent to draw their morals from uh, an outside source uh, more than liberals. And there was an article a few years ago that, that discussed things in the context of exoskeletons and endoskeletons. And people, presumably, who had endoskeletons had a more innate sense of what was correct and what wasn't correct um, and tended to be liberals. So uh, I, looking back on it, hate is, is kind of restructuring that whole, uh, so to say, uh, exoskeleton and endoskeleton definition, and and affirming what is positive about drawing um, moral values from an external source, i.e., um, religion, uh, faith in a a government that is not necessarily intrusive but authoritative and just. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and um, I did want to get to a a chapter in the righteous mind that hate calls from genes to moral matrices or matrices. Um, because one of the questions that I had while reading the book is, okay, so we have, uh, we have two different types of elephants, basically a liberal and a conservative one. How did we come to, you know, where, how did this evolve? What was the, uh, what, are, what are the defining factors? What, how is it that we've come to be uh, where we are today, uh, where, where these, um, these contrasts are so strong? So he gives a few different uh, reasons for it. The first one is genes make the brains. I'm just going to read a little bit from that. He says, after analyzing the DNA of 13,000 Australians, Scientists recently found several genes that differed between liberals and conservatives. Most of them related to neurotransmitter functioning, particularly glutamate and serotonin, both of which are involved in the brain's response to threat and fear. This finding fits well with many studies showing that conservatives react more strongly than liberals to signs of danger, including the threat of germs and contamination, which we mentioned earlier, and even low-level threats such as sudden blasts of white noise. Other studies have implicated genes related to receptors for the neurotransmitter dopamine, which has long been tied to sensation-seeking and openness to experience, which are among the best-established correlates to liberalism. As the Renaissance writer Michael de Montaigne said, 
The only things I find rewarding are variety and the enjoyment of diversity. So there is a genetic component to, um, to liberals and conservatives and, and the way that uh, we think as, as individuals. Um, that must have evolved, uh, and he gets into this a little bit as well, there must have been this kind of exchange um, or interaction between genes and culture that happened over uh, many thousands of years, but that, uh, that has also seemed to accelerate in the past hundred, hundred years or so, uh, which could only explain how it is that we've seen such an incredible divide. Not that there haven't been revolutions um, prior to what we're, what we're kind of seeing now, um, but certainly nothing, nothing is widespread, I don't think, and, and nothing is intense and, and, uh, and absolutely dangerous to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's you look at the point that we're at in history and just the fact that there are so many cultures right now all across the world in so much contact, you know, that just that creates so much friction between all of these different groups. I mean, each each group has its own needs and, you know, every other group wants to take from this group or, you know, or we have to figure out ways to, to get along. And it just creates the recipe for, you know, these kinds of conflicts between the liberal you know, mentality, the liberal moral code and the, the conservative moral code where, you know, it been, if you don't really have the, the, the social cohesiveness to maintain some sort of a sense of community or some sense of rationality as you're going through this process, then, it, I mean, it just makes sense that as things get more complex, you know, things are happening faster and faster. You are just going to start flying apart faster and faster yes. as a society. Um, and, you know, we look at the, to the East uh, these days and you see, you know, what it takes um, you know, for you know, for them to to get along, and it's you know, for the probably it's probably us that's doing it more than anything. You know, we are. They have a common enemy. The whole world has a common enemy right now in the in the U.S. that you know makes it their homeostatic imperative to get along and to forge new connections and to create uh, new economic relationships and to to ditch us to the curb. So um, you know, when you when you look at morality as like a homeostatic imperative, I mean, you know. You know, I just I think that shines a lot of light on you know the kind of moral structures of different um, communities and why they do what they do and and you know if you look at us we're the we're the big bad we're the big bad guy you know for a lot of the world right now and unfortunately you know even in America even among people who are uh, you know of more rational bent you know they can't you can't accept that because as a conservative the very moral attributes that that are grounding you into reality are the ones that it will make you reject reality <laughs> the reality of what the US is doing all over the world and why you know countries are reacting negative uh, negatively to us you know into the the actions that we enable you know in the middle east especially you know and the the refugee crisis that you know that that is happening and you know for you know so it's just a recipe for such total disaster it's i mean you couldn't write something this asinine <laughs> i mean it's, it's just absolutely unbelievable yeah i mean we're we're looking at a uh, this is a epic cosmic uh, sci-fi horror show writ large. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there, there have been, really, there have been sci-fi novels that, that have ad addressed, you know, the scope of, of what uh, we're seeing, and it still doesn't even scratch the surface, in a sense, because it only takes one particular slice of, of <laughs> what, what we're seeing. 
mm-hmm. and like you said, Corey, I mean, there, there's so many disparate pieces, or maybe this is just what I'm thinking. Uh, you know, you have to parse out every single uh, issue that comes up, an argument, um, and really kind of as much as possible anyway, because it's difficult. We, we have jobs, we have uh, responsibilities, um, but it behooves us to, if we're gonna if we're gonna say something, at least try as much as possible to look at it from all angles. And like w- one of the angles that I really appreciated uh, from this book is um, the confusion among the left to uh, to kind of lump together all conservatives with orthodoxy uh, or with um, extremism is another way to to describe it, I think. Um, not all conservatives are, you know, white nationalists or, you know, alt-right or racist or, or you know, however, I mean, that's a very convenient way uh, or argument or narrative that people tell themselves, uh, which enables them to dismiss anything that uh, contradicts their own points of view. Um, and that's that's one of the biggest uh, lessons I think of the past year and a half of, of reading about you know the liberal madness that that we've been uh, witnessing in the U.S. Um, you know there there is this knee jerk reaction if it's not you know which sounds just like George W. Bush if you're not with us you're against us mm-hmm. um, and and for any side to take such a position is is can be lethal uh, potentially to everyone um, reminds me quite a bit of a. Uh, another YouTube video I recently watched, which was of a a guy I think filming out of Kentucky or somewhere, um, who was a conservative young guy, uh, who was basically saying to liberals, "Do they even know? Do they even have some understanding of what would happen in the U.S. if Trump should be kicked out or impeached or worse? Uh, do they have any understanding?" that there is a quiet majority of conservatives who don't mean anyone harm, that don't want to, you know, inflict any kind of uh, pain on anyone necessarily, uh, who are preparing themselves quietly for the day, the possible day, when something of that um, order would occur. Um, So he he very rationally broke it down and... uh, and was warning people to the extent that he could, because probably his audience is mostly people who are like him, uh, who are pro-Trump and pro-Constitution and, and uh, pro-Second Amendment and uh, want um, you know, smaller federal government and, and, and less intrusion into their lives. Um, so there are people who can be spoken to on the right uh, who are listening, who are paying attention, who see things from a vantage that many don't. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just you're talking about these, uh, you know, the effect that they're having on the on the right wing. Um, I, I was reading one of uh, Jonathan Haidt's blog posts, and he talks about a 2005 book called The Authoritarian Dynamic, 
which is an extremely academic work, uh, full of graphs, you know, regression analyses, scholarly disputes over the nature of authoritarianism. And it's not very widely read for those reasons. Um, I haven't read it, but it, it sounded uh, really interesting. Um, but the author finds that authoritarianism is not really a stable personality trait, but it's a psychological predisposition to become radically intolerant when the person perceives a certain kind of threat. Now, according to her, um, conservatives, uh, this is like a branch of the conservatives. It, this is not all conservatives. Um, she has, there are the authoritarians and then there's status quo conservatives, which can be drawn into alliance with authoritarians when they perceive that that far left element has subverted the country's traditions and identity so badly that dramatic political actions are required. And so what they perceive as a, you know, not just a, um, you know, like a, a militaristic threat, but it's a normative threat, which means a threat to the integrity of the moral order as they perceive it. And the idea that we as a nation are coming apart, the perception of just radical disobedience to group authorities, nonconformity to group norms, lack of consensus in group values and beliefs, and just this uh, div uh, diversity and freedom run amok, which would activate this predisposition and, and increase the manifestation of those kinds of attitudes. So, you know, for the left, it's... I mean, I, it's just hard not to think that they're being pushed mm -hmm. in order to per, uh, create this kind of a dynamic, um, you know, if it's possible, just to create the, the very conditions which they say they're trying to fight. Mm -hmm. You know, they just through their sheer hysteria, they just hallucinate these things and then, you know, they'll create them and then the rest of us will have to suffer from it. You know, that's if they succeed, which is not, you know, I don't really think that... Yeah, I mean, it's just hard to say, yes, you know, the conservatives are going to go all crazy fascists, you know, or whatever, because the liberal side are the, you know, the more fascist element. But they are, you know, definitely pushing as hard as they can to create the conditions where, you know, there is a, a massive pushback by the, by the actual disciplined, organized, angry, and violent type that says, you know, you know, basically, you need a whooping now, boy. <laughs> well, well, that, that's a that's a great point, and that is that uh, there there might be a backlash that is actually organized by the government, which is a you know which at first might seem appealing to some people who've had enough of it, uh, but it might be so organized that um, it's it's going to affect not only conservatives who who've been hurt by a lot of the policies of uh, neoliberalism. Uh, but it's going to come back and visit the liberals themselves. Um, you know, there can be a purge uh, of, of some kind. And not saying that a purge of all of this crazy hysteria would be a bad thing in and of itself. You know, it just all depends on the nature of it and the, the kind of organizing factor behind it, the intent behind, you know, that kind of an organization. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, just... We've covered a lot of ground today. I, I mean, we've discussed moral systems, and I mean, we didn't really get a chance to discuss like virtues or, you know, or anything like that. Which I think that, you know, for for a lot of us, those are they seem like distant, you know, mythic archetypes, which in reality are really relevant for you know your just day to day life. Which it would be nice to you know discuss that sometime. But the I think that's it for me. Unless you have anything else that you'd like to discuss today, Lon. No, it was a great topic to discuss and to think about, and uh, we'll probably be revisiting it. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for tuning in, everyone. Be sure to tune in to Newsreel tomorrow at noon Eastern Standard Time and the Health and Wellness Show next Friday. And next Saturday, hopefully, we'll be challenging the philosophical underpinnings of postmodernism. Thank you, everybody. You have a great week.